Hi all. I hope that we're all muddling through our respective marches. Uh, this month is both Women's History Month and Disability Awareness Month. We really doubled up on that one, and we're going to acknowledge that this is Disability Awareness Month, even though it was so named by President Reagan. We won't pull that thread. In any case, I'd long planned for the second issue of my Substack, which is what I'm reading from and, and covers the same material. Um, if you have not subscribed, I would love to have you. It's free, um, and you can find it at mkzjoybrennan.substack.com. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd long planned for the second issue of my Substack to cover the inimitable Judith Human a disability and human rights activist who lost her ability to walk after having polio as a youngin. I was so grateful to have had the chance to speak with Judy recently in a recorded conversation for New York's Felicity House, where a group of women on the autism spectrum, so an invisible disability, talked with her about the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, advocating for yourself and when to do so versus grow or choose different battles and ways to advocate for others. Then I learned that Judy had passed away yesterday at the age of 75. NPR and CBS acknowledged her passing by hailing her the mother of the disability rights movement. And to give you a sense of her significance, I learned of her death through a post by Barack and Michelle Obama. So she was an absolute giant, and I am doubly grateful now to have had the chance to speak with her and about her here. Uh, before we dive into the substance, a little bit about Judy Human. Among other things, she helped get the Americans with Disabilities Act, aka the ADA, passed with efforts that include staging sit-ins at government buildings. A multi-day and thus overnight sit-in is no joke, even for able-bodied folks. I certainly couldn't do it without really, really good cause and a lot of cozy accompaniments. Um, but for human and her fellow advocates who are reliant, some of them on equipment like wheelchairs or crutches, bra braces, or oxygen and serious medication regimens, all those sorts of things, the fortitude of doing that is dizzying and really humbling. So also, as we acknowledge Judy Human, who lost her ability to walk due to polio before there was a vaccine for it, a shout out at this moment to all those swell anti-vaxxers proliferating today who we can thank for recent returns of fully preventable diseases like polio. Anyways, I am only scratching the surface of what Judy Human accomplished in her life as a disability rights advocate. For example, and if you want more hashtag Judy content, she's featured in an episode of Drunk History as the subject, not a drunk participant. And a Netflix documentary about Judy Human's journey and some of her colleagues called Crip Camp won an Oscar last year. Also, as a big cousin point of pride, she also spoke with my amazing cousin Nora, who is a burgeoning disability activist herself, born with cerebral palsy and a spinal cord injury, after Nora's work to help fellow students with disabilities on her college campus. Also, today, March 6th, happy 22nd birthday today, Nora. So, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Since its passage in the early 90s, the ADA has become one of the broadest federal legal bases for protecting folks with disabilities, um, even for protecting other marginalized groups, but we'll get to more on that in a second. Titles 1, 2, and 3 of the Five-Title Act protect against discrimination based on disability in employment contexts by state and local governments and in government facilities, 
in public accommodations and commercial facilities. So that covers a lot of society. And it's also pretty baffling to think that this type of discrimination in all of these spheres wasn't prohibited before the ADA, which was, you know, again, early 90s. So almost within a lot of our lifetimes. Um, and I, I believe it was 1990, so 30-ish years ago. The ADA is thus always my legislative poster child for why libertarianism and small government conservatism don't work for anyone but the privileged, and we have proof. Um, because the private sector, etc., business when left to its own devices without government intervention, when it was free to either protect people or not, it didn't choose to protect enough without a legislative mandate that was created in this case by the ADA. So, I don't know how you have any other analysis of that. Uh, anyways, um, the ADA has actually become a big and sometimes the only protector against gender, sexuality, and gender identity discrimination. Most recently, there's been a debate over whether diagnosable psychological conditions like gender dysphoria are covered under the ADA. Some of those battles to protect transgender folks under the ADA are ongoing. A couple of the federal circuit courts, which is the level of court right under the Supreme Court of the United States in the legal hierarchy, have addressed it, and that is great in theory, and kind of in practice too. But as always, the best protection that could come from the courts would come from the Supreme Court itself. Um, and we're in a serious progress pickle where any legal issue that could make it to SCOTUS is concerned, given how that bench looks these days, but I digress. In short, many, many thanks to Judy Human and her fellow fighters for the ADA we know and love. So now to Judy Human's insights on advocacy. My question for Judy was a somewhat selfish one. <laughs> we all have such different needs, and not all our needs and difficulties are visible. And so few of our systems are designed to sustain each of our individualized capabilities. It's pretty cookie cutter and kind of black and white, our way or the highway, so to speak. So we all have to navigate for ourselves and self-apprise our own abilities and kind of foresee our own limits and potential burnout and do all of that before any burnout happens. So I asked Judy how to balance seeking accommodations for yourself with being kind of damned by your own functionality. So I know when I was younger and, you know, trying to quote unquote succeed professionally, I learned to push myself beyond my sustainable limits just to meet the standards that other people had set in systems designed for other people. So only now am I sorting through what parts of that growth was positive or were positive and what was just forced adaptation to traditional systems that I'm not going to be able to sustain for long periods of happy living. Uh, being the powerhouse that she is, Judy promised some insight about knowing when to be a squeaky wheel on your own behalf, even though people may perceive a certain degree of functionality and question whether you actually need it. Hello, everybody. Um, thank you so much for inviting me tonight. I look forward to discussing uh, questions. I am an almost 75-year-old white disabled woman. I had polio in 1949. My pronouns are she, her, and um, I don't walk. I use a motorized chair. And I am wearing um, 
blue glasses and I have brown hair, which is highlighted, which I started doing for the Oscars, which I think is very funny. But at any rate, um, and I'm wearing my mother, my late mother's sweater. She passed away in 1998. So you can tell it's old, but I didn't, she didn't wear pants and I couldn't fit into her dresses, but I have quite a number of her sweaters and blouses. All right. Hi, <laughs> it's great to Hi. see you. Again. So I was going to start, eventually move into talking about advocacy specifically, but um, before that, uh, something that I'm sure that you relate to in terms of balancing advocating for accommodations and then kind of being damned by your own functionality at a certain point and kind of knowing when you've adapted out of, you know, positive growth versus when you've adapted just to fit into a traditional system and getting comfortable being a squeaky wheel when looking for accommodations, even though you may have adapted to a certain degree of functionality? Well, it's a very um, interesting question and there isn't a linear answer. So I think, you know, for me, um, and I presume for most of you, when you kind of stick your toe in the water, you're not only trying to feel the temperature of the water, but also how far in you want to go. And uh, in many ways, it's being able to develop a sense of security, not only uh, in who you are, who I am, but in many ways, you know, one of the important aspects of work that I've done over the years is that I don't do many things by myself. I very much um, work with other people, not always the same people, depending on the issue. But I like to think about and talk with friends about issues that I may want to be getting more involved with on a personal or broader level. Now, certainly there are things that happen which are spontaneous. You know, once I went into a restaurant with some friends who were all wheelchair, you were mostly wheelchair users and the manager of the restaurant wanted us to get out. So, you know, there are a couple of ways of thinking about that. Did I wanna give this guy our money since he was being rude? I wasn't about to leave um, and I wasn't about with, and there were a couple of other people and they were from other countries. And I wasn't about to set a bad example of um, leaving because somebody didn't want us there because we were displeasing to look at whatever the thought or the law said at that time. So I just said, no, we're not leaving. And if you want to call the police, you can do that. Um, now, that was not a planned event. I had um, no idea that this was going to happen. It wasn't something that typically happened, but it was something that I needed to respond to. So that's something where, you know, me and I'm sure many of you would just say at the moment, what is the right thing to do? 
And other people might have done it differently, but that's the way I did it. And then, you know, there's the broader issue, for example, of like accommodations that you may need or just the way you're being treated. Um, I ran for city council when I lived in Berkeley and I ran against a woman who was an incumbent and her husband was a campaign manager. So no real big surprise that I lost my first time. Um, and I was a part of a group of people who were running uh, for different positions. It was a progressive democratic group. And um, there was a party celebrating the work that the group had done and the number of people who had won. And a discussion was pursuing. Um, I was the only uh, obviously disabled person there. And a discussion was pursuing about what to do after the party. And people started talking about going to the movies. And it was really clear that they were not thinking about, and this was in 1990. So it was a little bit, like a couple of months after the ADA. And there was no thought from the people in the group about like accessibility. And I said something, but I just really began to feel uncomfortable. Like I didn't want to be pushing going to the movies with them if they didn't want me to. And I, I don't think it was that they didn't want me, but they didn't want us. They wanted to just spontaneously look at the movies and not at whether or not the theaters were accessible. So I kind of faded out from the discussion although I didn't leave the circle. And when I went home, I called a dear friend of mine who also had a disability. And I said to her, am I a Martian? And that's like a phrase that I've taken on for myself with friends when things are going like really wacko. And that's not a legislative issue. It's you know, partly what I'm saying is it depends on what the issue is. You know, if it's something um, around rights for more people, it's not responsible for me to kind of disappear. There, I feel like I have to be fully engaged with other people, really looking at what our purpose is, how we strategized what we want to do. And you can still feel insecure, but you know that you're in a group of people who share a similar vision. So I hope I'm answering your question, but I think it's really, you know, getting to know yourself when you need support from others, how to strategize, thinking short and long term. And then I think there is this inner sense of self and kind of what your limits are um, when you kind of just pull out into the vapor and when you're going to make your stand, so to speak. I think this is actually a good segue into the advocacy questions too. Um, 
So one that came from other community members is generally about your biggest lessons as an advocate, specifically in the IDEA and the ADA. And I would add on to that, any advice that you have for means of advocacy? So obviously protest is one that you have engaged in. And I would say like camping out in offices is, it's, I think the extreme would be violent, but that is kind of short of that it's one of the more extreme ways to protest versus when it's just changing minds around you um when you start with changing the law versus when you need to start with changing societal attitudes making calls like that and any advice you have on those fronts to me it's important to have a network of people that you work well with and i also feel it's very important to know what you know and know what you don't know and know when you need to reach out to speak to people who know more than you do. Um, to, you know, on legislative issues, you know, for me, it's over the last number of decades, I've learned a lot more about the legislative process. So to me, that's very important to, you know, not get pulled down into the weeds where you're not going to do things, but to have a broad understanding if we're looking at legislation, it's there's so many different stages, right? So, and your visions can change. I, I want to say that I've been involved in many different forms of demonstrations and litigation, but I've never been involved in violent activities. I've just never personally feel that um, things, you know, if you look at work that ADAPT has done, um, ADAPT itself never um, promoted violent activities. But, you know, when they were arrested sometimes by the police, things got more out of hand than other times. But I think at the end of the day, Nonviolence is very important. I think especially, well, period. I don't think it's especially. I think it's just period. Uh, being knowledgeable, committed, knowing what it is we're wanting. And um, I, I don't like the words, but standing our ground. You know, it's committing ourselves. And, you know, 504, which for those of you who've seen script camp or seen the film or read the book, my book, um, you'll see that the 504 activities took many years. And um, I'm not saying that everything that we do should take many years because sometimes you need to jump in and really uh, respond and react to things quickly. But again, it depends on the issue. You know, in the case of 504, it was a brand new law at a time when the disability community wasn't organized. And it was a learning process for so many of us about what is a regulation? How do you develop a regulation? What, what is compromise? What are we willing to compromise on? What are we not willing to compromise on? Um, how do we negotiate with other people who are the major players? Um, you know, So you'll see in a lot of the work that I and many other people have done, it really frequently uh, involves working, as I've said, collaboratively 
with other groups. They may or may not be disability groups. Um, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, you know, for me is a great example of an organization that really works fantastically with other disability organizations. They've got a very strong leadership. I respect their leadership, you know, very highly. And they, um, they, my language is they work and play well with others. It's a phrase that I use a lot because it's important. And it doesn't mean that you agree all the time, but being respectful, I think is what's important. Being willing to listen and agree to agree when you can and agree to disagree. And that's, you know, in many cases, you know, there isn't one answer. I really need to keep saying that to assume there's one answer is a mistake. But, you know, because I've had many different types of jobs, you know, one being with smaller nonprofits and then working in government and international. And for example, when I worked for the Department of Education and we were working on the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act amendments in the 1990s. That was totally different than when I had worked in a nonprofit organization. Because when I was working in the US government and we were working on the development of uh, language for laws and regulations, then we needed to cast a very wide net. It was really important to be able to listen to the breadth of the people who were involved in these issues. And that did not mean just disabled people or parents. It meant we had to deal with all of the associations that have anything to do with education because any one of those groups could have come in at any point. And if we didn't have relationships with them, they could have come out diametrically opposed to things we were trying to do. So I feel like you know, look at the situation, read, look at what other, you know, if you look at the disability rights um, movement as we were evolving in the 60s and 70s forward, a lot of what we were doing was really looking to other movements and learning about what other movements were doing. And, you know, there were so many layers. If you think about the civil rights movement and the litigation that was going on for years, Brown versus Board of Education being a very critical case, but also what led up to being able to get the passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act um, so much. And uh, we were, you know, motivated uh, very much, I want to say in a somewhat unknowledgeable way, like by looking at television, reading things, just seeing, um, you know, none of you here know a time when there wasn't television of some sort, where there was no, um, really the telephone came about in the early century, but, you know, smartphones and that didn't come about till like really the 1990s and the internet and all these things. So you also historically looking at how things evolve is different today. And so that's also something I think that needs to be taken into consideration. You know, how you control information, how you trust information, how you share information. Um, yeah. 
I think it's exciting times, but we need to continually be thoughtful, knowledgeable, collaborative, and keep our eyes on the prize, whatever that prize is. And it may take many years to incrementally get there because, I mean, I've been involved in this really at least since I was 18. Um, and certainly there are many important changes that have happened, but nowhere near what I would have hoped to have happened at this point in my life. So again, wrapping up here, um, I I want to give Judy a huge, unfortunately, posthumous thanks, which I hadn't planned on being posthumous, but here's to you, Judy. We are all eternally grateful in this society, I, I think even those of us who don't know it. Um, if you're inclined, I highly recommend giving Crip Camp a watch. It's on Netflix. And um, as my aunt and Warren Zevon have said, enjoy every sandwich. Have a good one.